Welcome to Sustainable Business Fridays. I'm your host, Katie Elman. Sustainable Business Fridays is the first podcast of its kind, bringing together students in Bard College's MBA in Sustainability program with leaders in business, sustainability, finance, not-for-profits, social entrepreneurship, and more. Twice monthly, these conversations go live via iTunes and Google Play. This week, I'm joined by first-year Bard MBA student Emily Robichaud, and we're speaking with Danielle Vogel, founder of Glen's Garden Market. Thank you both for joining me this morning. Emily, can you tell me a little bit about your relationship with Danielle? And I believe you know each other before today. Yes, I had the very good fortune of working in the building right next door to the original Glen's Garden Market location. And so was able to watch the business really start up and continue to grow. Um, and I, my husband and I are customers, very good customers. We come in, I think, every week. Um, and so have gotten to know Danielle over the past few years and just learning a little bit about you know, her personal background and how she came into uh, this role as a small business owner has been really interesting. And I think it would be of interest to the, the broader uh, sustainability community as well. That's great. Now, Danielle, so it's interesting. We, the majority of the people that are interviewed for this series are in the New York metropolitan area. So I was really excited when Emily brought your name to the table because it's so great to hear about what other entrepreneurs and other business people are doing outside of New York. It's just exciting to see the work you're doing and how it's even possible and the care that goes into um, almost like you're curating this experience for uh, the customers. So I will turn the interview over to Emily now and she has some really great questions for you. Thank you. Great. Danielle, thank you again for taking the time to speak with us. Um, I'm very excited to be sharing a little bit about what I have learned about Glenn's uh, with the, the broader public. Um, so I wanted to start first just by understanding some of the background and, and how you got to becoming an entrepreneur. Your decision to establish Glenn's Garden Market blended both your personal family history and your professional expertise and interest. Could you share with us just a brief, brief history of this path? Absolutely. Um, so speaking of New York, uh, my father started a grocery chain called the Food Emporium, and my grandfather started a grocery chain called Pathmark. And, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, and grocery is a tradition that stretches back 100 years on both sides of my family. Uh, that being said, it was never my interest. I always intended to go to college and go to law school and work for my congressman uh, in Washington, and that's exactly what I did. I spent 10 years working on the Hill. I worked for Christopher Shays, who represented my hometown in Connecticut. I worked for Senator Lieberman. Of course, he was a senator from Connecticut at the time. I worked for the Department of Justice litigating Clean Air Act issues. But um, the, most recently, what I was doing in the Senate was writing the last major Senate climate change bill, which was called the American Power Act. And we worked on that with Senator Lieberman and Senator Graham, and at the time, Senator Kerry. Uh, and when that bill failed... Uh, and it became clear that there was no path forward for legislative progress, I had to find a way to continue making climate change progress. And so I founded a business intentionally and specifically to continue to make, obviously not large-scale national uh, advancement, but incremental climate change progress. 
or as we call it in the store, uh, progress one bite at a time. So every single decision that we make for the business is made with the environment in mind in ways uh, really large in terms of our sourcing methodology. We only sell food from the states of the Chesapeake Bay watershed um, to things that seem really insignificant to most people. Uh, we don't have any paper or plastic bags at Glenn's. Uh, we only use reusables. Um, of course, all of our equipment is uh, the most energy efficient available on the market. Uh, and then we retrofit most of it to make it even more energy efficient. We built our bar tops out of post-consumer recycled paper. We built our walls out of reclaimed uh, cattle fencing. Um, we built our freezers, our big industrial walk-in freezers, inside of our refrigerators so that we wouldn't lose as much energy when we open the door because it's now opening only to the refrigerator temperature as opposed to the kitchen temperature. Um, of course, we have robust recycling and compost programs, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so as I was saying before, every single decision we make for the business is made with the environment in mind. So even though the experience when you walk into the place is, a, is sort of a really fun, hip neighborhood grocery store, um, in every contour, it is very much a climate change agent. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. It's really interesting to see how in so many different ways you've been able to incorporate sustainability as a strategic choice and not just something as a, uh, a path towards compliance or efficiency. Yeah. Um, building on that, I'm wondering, are you able to quantify in any way this impact, perhaps on greenhouse gas emissions, but also thinking about job creation and reinforcing the local economies? Uh, sure. So one of the, the easiest way to quantify it is that we are powered by wind, um, which is a very, very expensive choice to make for a grocery store. Um, because if you can imagine any grocery store, it's a room surrounded by refrigerators and fancy cooking equipment. So it's a quite energy consumptive experience. Um, so we signed a power purchase agreement to buy wind offsets for all of our power consumption for a period of three years. So what that means is essentially we're paying three times as much for our energy as we would otherwise be. So every month they send us this really neat little, like, this year, this month your energy consumption meant we took 1,800 cars off the road, you know, or it would be equivalent to planting 6,000 trees. Um, so we have those little metrics, and they're frankly staggering when you look at uh, at the collective impact of three years. Um, but the but the my personal focus um, is in in one of our company values in particular. Um, and that one is that we grow small businesses along with our own. Um, and the idea there is that, you know, I have two, two little tiny grocery stores, um, and there's only so much change we can make within those eight walls. But the concept is that the more time we invest in growing small businesses that share our values, um, the more we're able to sort of propel them into the mainstream market. And when we do that, they are effectively displacing demand for industrially produced food um, and expanding the reach of our movement beyond the walls of our stores. So in the three and a half years that we've been open, we have launched 66 local food businesses, which means that we've given 66 local food entrepreneurs their very first chance to sell their products on our shelves. Um, of those 66, 42 are producing in D.C., and 34 are owned by women. Really fascinating. Um, I wanted to pick up on a, a, a piece that you mentioned about the, the power purchase agreement and, and being powered by wind and just kind of follow up with a question about what 
role policy could have in incentivizing other small businesses to make the decisions that you chose to do. Certainly nothing required you to choose to, to power your stores uh, through wind energy. And you have, uh, you know, there, there is an additional cost to having made that decision. And I'm wondering what role uh, either federal, state or local policy could have in encouraging other small businesses to make that same decision. That's a really good idea. A good question. Um, so the bottom line is it's a really expensive choice, which makes it unattractive to small business, right? Um, and the way particularly wind power offsets work is that I have chosen to send essentially an obfuscating market signal, right? Because the way wind, or I'm sorry, the way power is dispatched is that the regional transmission operators look to all existing generation sources in the region that they serve. Um, and at any given increment, there's a five-minute uh, market, there's a 10-minute market, there's a 24-hour market. They're looking to dispatch onto the grid the least expensive power being generated at that time. And because uh, of sort of the preferential treatment that fossil fuels get in our energy economy, um, wind is really never, ever the cheapest energy generation resource at any given time, um, or very, very infrequently would it be that resource. So the idea of buying these offsets is that essentially you are subsidizing the wind generation so that it appears to be cost competitive, so it's eligible for dispatch. That, that all makes sense. So the idea is that if you can incentivize business owners to create that false market signal, then you are calling on wind resources more frequently. Um, and there certainly are, uh, you know, tax incentives that could that could be used to that end. Um, of course, it would require a complete and total reversal of the way we perceive power in this country. Um, uh, in the Energy Power Act of 2005, for instance, fossil fuel resources were subsidized at a rate of 17 to 1 relative to renewables, um, and we haven't enacted a national energy policy in decades. Um, <laughs> so on a national level, I'm not like super optimistic, um, but just from the perspective of a small business owner, um, one opportunity for federal incentives for business owners to choose wind would be to credit us for making that decision instead of, uh, you know, frankly, this was kind of like a decision against my financial interest, um, but I did it because it's absolutely the right thing to do and it's consistent with what we're trying to accomplish. Um, but I would be hard pressed to find another small business owner trying to make the math of small business work uh, that would choose to incur an expense three times higher than they had to uh, in the absence of an incentive program. Right. No, it's very interesting because I'm pretty sure that our, we have made that choice for our household and it just in comparing bills, it certainly is more expensive to to go that route. And I started to question if I am questioning this, certainly others are as well. And you know, if, if even the most um, sustainable among us and the people who are most committed to the cause are questioning um, or making finding it hard to make that jump, uh, certainly that's a, a major roadblock to others doing so as well. Absolutely, without question or reservation. So, I mean, there are a couple of different options, right? You either incentivize the power production. Um, through uh, production tax credits and that sort of thing, uh, or you incentivize the consumer to choose it, um, notwithstanding the price differential. Uh, either of those are, like, as I'm sort of mentioning, like quite antithetical to the way we've written energy policy in the past. Right. So to take this one step further, just kind of thinking about access to energy, but also combining that with Glenn's role of providing 
uh, nutritious uh, food access. Are there other thoughts you have on either local, state, or regional policy that would make uh, both of these, so you know, energy access and food access, available to those um, either in you know across Washington D.C. or across all socioeconomic uh, layers? Yeah, um, actually, we built our second location in a food desert, um, and the city offers a huge grocery tax credit. Um, so it's a, it was not easy to get. But what it means is that for the next 10 years, we don't owe any real estate taxes, which for you know a business with a significant footprint um, is a humongous boon. That's fantastic. Uh, let's see. So um, Glenn's often hosts events that bring together the community. Could you talk with us a little bit about your vision for small businesses as community building centers and how this vision could be carried into other DC neighborhoods or other cities? Absolutely. Um, so Emily mentioned that she and her husband uh, shop at Glenn's once a week, and I'm pretty much always bagging their groceries when they come in. Um, but she called herself a customer, and we call Emily a neighbor. Um, all of our all of our folks that surround our stores are perceived by us as part of the Glens family. So we like to throw parties for them uh, once a season. So we had our most recent one uh, last weekend, and it was Dogtoberfest. So for that one, we have Flying Dog Brewery come in. They do a nice beer garden outside on the patio. We invite dogs to come in costume. Emily, did Rue come? No, she's actually not a great she loves people. She does not really love other dogs, so she doesn't play well in those in those environments. Uh, heard. My dog is also not like super uh, friendly, but she did make a brief appearance in her leader Um But yeah, good old Allie. So anyway, so the point is that we throw these big like parties to celebrate the neighborhood and the community once a season. Um, the biggest one of the year is our birthday party. And of course, this is eye-roll worthy. We opened Glans Garden Market on Earth Day of 2013. So every Earth Day, we throw ourselves an Earth Day birthday party. Um, and each year, it has been centered around these businesses that we've launched. Um, so one year, it was called We Grow Small Businesses Along With Our Own. And that year, we had launched 25 businesses at that, at that point. And then the next year, it was called Women of the Watershed. And we invited only the women entrepreneurs that launched businesses at Glens. And at that time, there were 25 women that had started their businesses with us. Um, this year, it's going to be called Made in D.C., um, and we'll have 50 D.C. producers by April. Um, so the idea is that it's really, we've really created this symbiotic relationship with these small businesses that share our values. Um, we bring them into the stores. We spend, you know, a ton of money and effort on marketing. We get the whole community to come out because the idea is that we want to introduce them to these small business owners. We want to connect them with the people that make their food. Um, so that's what we do on sort of like the large grand scale is we bring the whole community in to meet these folks that we're trying to promote. Um, but on a regular basis, uh, in the store itself, we really turn the grocery paradigm on its head. So in a regular grocery store, you might find, you know, depending on the size of the store, you might find 200,000 products in a grocery store. Um, and there is a very developed science to product placement. They're putting the things where they want the consumers of the things to be looking. Um, in our store, uh, we find products with an incredibly compelling value proposition, um, and we give them fantastic slotting, and we actively take a hit on the margin to almost create like a false cost competitiveness um, so that people don't choose 
the more ubiquitous brand over the more special value-driven brand, um, values-driven brand, I should say, um, because of price alone. Um, and so the result is that we're able to really help scale these businesses quickly. Um, they are able to hire extra staff because of the volume that we're doing. Um, and now that we have two stores, that's only magnified. Um, so in every every day, like in, in every way, we're united with these businesses to try to help stand them up. We provide mentorship when they want it and when they ask for it, which is often um, on everything from packaging design to flavor profile to even, you know, how many units they sell in a case to what the price should be. You know, it is probably pretty rare for somebody that is trying to sell a product to a grocer um, to have the grocer say, you know, your pricing methodology isn't right and I want you to be able to get into Whole Foods, so let me teach you how to do this properly. Um, rather, most people would just say no. Um, and so we have these really unique uh, but really mutually beneficial relationships with, with all of these little guys, um, which simultaneously makes our stores sort of the microcosm of what's happening in the food scene regionally. Um, so it's great for everybody. That's really fascinating. And just as a, you know, a currently in learning about accounting and economics um, and thinking about sustainable business management, uh, you've hit on a number of things that have come up in our classes, everything from okay. cash flow to product placement to costing. And so it's really interesting to see a real life example um, of, of how this all works. Um, you've mentioned a couple times that you know, some of the businesses that you've helped to grow are owned by women. That was the focus of the, uh, the Earth Day birthday event last year. I'm curious about your experience um, as a woman business owner. Has gender been a factor either for yourself or for others in any way as you've built up your business? Um, I'm kind of one of those women who doesn't allow it to be one. Um, it is, honestly, it's uh, extremely helpful to me that I have a law degree. Um, it allows me a sense of confidence in every negotiation of which there are, you know, hundreds and thousands every year as a small business owner. Um, but yeah, admittedly, you know, this is a man's world for the most part, the grocery world. Um, and you know, the landlords that I deal with are mostly men. Um, and, um, this like little girl with this crazy idea, uh, that nobody's ever tried before. Um, but I'm also a total ball buster. Um, and a good negotiator. So uh, I have not let it derail me in like any aspect of this experience. That's excellent. Thank you. <laughs> uh, let's see. Okay, so just to turn back um, our focus to policy just for one more second, uh, what do you see as the role for sustainable businesses in shaping local, state, and federal policies? What is the potential impact they can have and what are the roadblocks? Um, I mean, I'm going to say something unpopular, which is that the biggest roadblock to doing things properly is it's usually more expensive. Um, so conversely, the way to incentivize these decisions is by making them either cost competitive or less expensive. Um, it is that simple. In the world of small business, we are negotiating a nearly impossible math problem every single day. Um, so when we have an opportunity to control our controllables, um, and instead we choose to pick a higher cost alternative, um, that just doesn't make a lot of sense for the bottom line. Now, we do it anyway, but we're weird, and we exist for the purpose of making this change. Um, but somebody that's sitting there trying to balance 
their payroll against their inventory costs against, uh, you know, they might need to buy new uniforms or a new oven or, you know, some other big expenditure. Uh, it is, it's darn near impossible for them to realize the wisdom of also paying three times as much for energy um, or buying a piece of equipment that is considerably more expensive upfront because of its long-term energy benefit. Um, and so, just naturally, the way to make those choices easier is to remove the cost-competitive piece of the analysis. So it's kind of like what I was describing with our pricing methodology. Um, you know, I'll take a jam that comes in the door to me um, at a much higher price relative to the competition on the market, and I'll sell them for the same price because I want somebody to choose the jam that we believe in. Um, and the same can be the same analogy can be drawn for. Um, whether it be energy investments or equipment investments. Um, and the more, I, I mean, tax credits, are, I just, I worked in the in Congress long enough to know how hard this is to do. Um, but the more you can create almost a false market signal to uh, to undermine the disadvantage of the more expensive choice, uh, the easier it is for folks to make that choice. That right. was a really convoluted way of answering the question. Does that make any sense? <laughs> yes, it does. And actually, you know, it ties in a lot with a, an ongoing debate that we have within our classes, which is should and can consumers pay more for sustainable goods, uh, green goods? And, you know, how do you go about it? They, they might cost more to produce, um, but can that be passed on to the consumer should it be passed on to the consumer, or do you then is there a way to incentivize the purchase of the greener goods by uh, raising the, the the cost of the non-green goods? And so it's a, it's an ongoing thing in the sense of, um, or an ongoing debate for us at least about you know the, the quality of the good is much higher, and so in theory could have a higher price, but then are you disincentivizing people from purchasing that when there are other goods that they could very easily substitute to? Yeah, it's a conundrum for real. Um, without a doubt. Because, you know, there are so many externalized costs of the cheap stuff. You know, there's this perception that, you know, Apple should cost 69 cents a pound. But like, what about the guy picking them? And what about the transportation emissions it took for those apples to bop across the country in the back of an 18-wheeler? You know, what about the healthcare costs associated with the environmental degradation caused by unsustainable farming practices? You know, but we're more interested in, you know, the end price of the apples than understanding the total math of the scenario. So when you're talking about sort of embedding extra costs in uh, sort of less environmentally sustainable goods, I mean, that would be that would be so great from a sociological perspective, from an environmental perspective, from an economic perspective. Um, but unfortunately, Americans are just used to, you know, he, hear no evil, see no evil. Um, and they just don't understand that there are like tremendous costs associated with cheap food. Agreed. And I'm really glad that you, glad that you brought up that human aspect of some of the mass produced food that, that we see in grocery stores. And I'm just curious if uh, in any way um, this comes up in the conversations with the other small businesses that you work with, um, are they you know, providing living wages? How does that, how does that work on a, on a local level um, as a, counterpoint to some of the mass-produced food with that relies um, on, you know, uh, very difficult employment conditions for the people who work there? Um, so as I, as I mentioned, I don't, I don't know of, an, of another all-local climate change motivated grocery store. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't necessarily have contemporaries that are making the same choices. Um, 
it's, you know, you much more often hear like local when available or local when we can find it. Um, and ours are like local, even though we've decided to play the game of grocery store on the level extra hard. Um, so the answer is you just don't see it elsewhere because it's a harder choice to make. Um, but in terms of the living wage, D.C. actually just raised its minimum wage to 1150 um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And every year until 2020, they're raising it by a buck, and then they're picking it to inflation. So uh, everyone in town is sort of struggling with the, the math problem that that's created. Um, before the minimum wage was 1150 uh, ours ours was there. Um, and so we were attracting, you know, very well-educated food articulate, food passionate talent pool. Um, and then they bumped it from 975 to 1150. Um, next week, we are announcing to our whole staff that we are implementing a 7.5% across the board wage increase. So we're giving every single member of our hourly staff, I have 96 employees, um, another dollar an hour. Because the issue is when the minimum wage goes up, so does the cost of living. Um, so even though we're paying 1150 for uh, you know, for a job that we could have gotten away with paying 975 for a few months ago. Um, we just want to make it a little easier for our folks, um, just a little bit easier. So everybody's getting a raise next week to try to stay ahead of this, of this issue of the minimum wage actually inflating the cost for everything they need to pay for on a regular basis. Wow. So, you know, just being, again, being in school, we talk a, a little bit about the, the minimum wage and what impact that has. And it's just so fascinating to see a very real life example, because it's one thing to read about it in a book. It's another thing to talk to someone who is, you know, like you're saying, responsible for doing the math and figuring out how to make, how to make a business continue to run under different conditions. So I'm just thinking as well about, um, you know, competitiveness with some of the much larger players like a Whole Foods. And how how does that work from a small business perspective and how much of what Whole Foods does drives what you might do, decisions that you might make for your own business? I love that question. Um, I worked for Whole Foods when I was developing this concept um, because they are the best in the business and I wanted to figure out exactly how they did what they did. Um, they wised up to this pretty quickly and that was the end of that relationship. Um, however, um, we have decided that since we can't compete on product mix by virtue of our mission, uh, we choose instead to compete on experience. So we have 11 company values. Uh, they are absolutely integral to the way we treat our neighbors, to the way we treat our vendors, to the way we treat each other. Um, it creates a, an environment that's truly indelible, um, a culture that is very uniquely positive and a really special service experience. Um, because I'm never going to sell you a banana or Duncan Hines or Coca-Cola or an avocado. Um, so instead, you know, every time you step into the space, you're going to hear, welcome back. It's great to see you. Oh, I remember that you really like this jam. You got to try this one that just came in this week. Um, it's almost like step back in time service. Um, we are totally connected to these values. Uh, we start every single shift by going around the room and everyone either shares a value or shares an anecdote for how they have seen a colleague live a value. Um, it, is, it is really definitional to what we're offering. So that's how we compete with Whole Foods. Um, now the second piece is any item where there's product mix overlap. So any item that Whole Foods sells that we also sell, we always match or beat their price. 
So we sell, you know, 90% of our products are not on the shelves at Whole Foods, but those 10% that are, we make sure that people aren't choosing to go to Whole Foods simply because of the price on the shelf. Fascinating. I'm also interested in, in this process in reverse. So for example, down the street, we have a Yes Organic Market that four or five years ago, I don't remember seeing very many local products. Now there are many more local products, including some that I see on the shelves at Glenn's. And I'm curious to, to see if you have observed this as well and is, is perhaps the, you know, the buy local, source local effort, is that expanding, is that pushing other competitors into this field as well? Without a doubt. Um, and in D.C. in particular, have you ever been to the Ace Hardware on 14th Street? They have like a local product section in the hardware store. Um, I have only been to the Ace up on Columbia. I haven't been to yeah, the one over on 14th. It's really cool. Um, but uh, these businesses just didn't uh, exist before. Mm-hmm. And I credit this movement largely to what the folks over at Union Kitchen are doing. Um, Colin Gilchrist and Jonah Singer, who founded Union Kitchen, have incubated hundreds and hundreds of small food businesses over the four or five years that they've been around. Um, And these are just products that that hadn't existed before. Um, Union Kitchen is a shared commercial kitchen space. So it's a place where food entrepreneurs can go to rent space to develop food ideas. Um, And then eventually they have distribution services. So then eventually Union Kitchen delivers those products to our stores. Um, And they help them with financing and they help them with uh, staff resources, um, product development and all sorts of other things. So, uh, you know, where that where there was there was no opportunity in D.C. before Union Kitchen came along for those uh, food entrepreneurs to really test out their concepts and develop them. Um, now there's a home for that, and the result is that they are really uh, coming up all over the place, uh, which is just so cool to see. And then, of course, we want to launch them, so then we, we get involved the second they're ready for retail. That's really interesting. So this has been uh, really fascinating, and I know we've talked a lot about some of the, the successes um, that Glenn's has experienced. Any lessons learned along the way or, you know, uh, <laughs> nominal failures that you care to share? Lessons learned. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would say for anybody going into business, two rules. Please listen up. Uh, number one, overcapitalize. Uh, it is just so so much more expensive than you could ever imagine. Um, for so many reasons. Number one, there are going to be things you didn't anticipate. Um, and more importantly, number two, at the beginning, you're not very good at it. So there are just implicit inefficiencies uh, that take a while to overcome. And then the second piece of it is get like a great CPA. Um, those two things uh, combined would have really made things go better a lot sooner. Um, but the problem is that when you need money, you can't get it. Uh, so you've got to go into the experience over overcapitalized so you've got a little bit of a burn path um, as you learn to do the thing. Fascinating. We've also talked a lot about, you know, startup capital and were uh, were you able to find local grants or support from the um, the DC government or was it um, kind of private capital that ah dang gosh so many roadblocks. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it was for the first store, it was almost entirely private capital. And then there is a regional bank called Eagle Bank that is like the restaurant startup's best friend. Um, 
it's very hard to go to a traditional bank with a restaurant concept, especially if you've never done it before, because that's an incredibly risky proposition. Um, but Eagle Bank gets it, um, and they understand a good concept when they hear it, and they were willing to lend to us for both store number one and store number two, um, which is pretty neat. And then store number one, I also like didn't want to do a lot of raising money from friends and family because I didn't know whether it was going to work, and I didn't want to lose their money. Um, but the second time around, we were pretty sure that it was going to work. So we, we sold off a little bit of equity the second time, um, which was a neat way for, for my friends and family to, to really feel like, you know, even more fundamentally invested in, in what we're doing together, which was pretty cool. Right. It's just so fascinating to me to see and hear about this, you know, the very local ecosystem that goes into running a successful business. Eagle Bank, my guess is, is not, you know, it is a local bank, right? It's not something, it's not a Bank of America, it's not a, a Wells Fargo, who may not have been willing to take uh, the type of risk. But, you know, Eagle Bank sees the the value in investing in something that's local. And you have paid it forward by assisting other small business owners in their startup. And it really does take a village. And that's something that's really kind of come across to me throughout this conversation is just how important it is to really invest and build up the, the local support system in order to continue to facilitate these types of, of innovations. Absolutely. And relationships. Right. You know, it's all about like trust and trust and innovation collectively. Trust and innovation. Great. Um, then my final question is um, a softball. <laughs> what advice would you give to students in the BARD or other sustainable MBA programs or to someone considering a similar venture in their community? Oh, uh, give me a call. Let me answer your questions. Um, <laughs> I like, let me, let, please benefit from the experience that we've had. There's no reason for all of us to be total and complete rookies. Um, we've done this the hardest way possible. Um, I love giving advice to folks. Um, and I love coming to talk to college classes, and I love uh, having kids come down to see the stores and sitting with them and answering their questions in person. Um, so feel free. I'm going to give you my email address. It's just glensmarket, G-L-E-N-S, market, at gmail.com. I know that sounds like an unattended mailbox, but it is, in fact, my personal email address. Um, if you're seriously thinking about starting up a food business, a food business or some some similar concept, uh, let me help you. Let me let me teach you how to do it. Thank you for that. Sure. Thank you, Katie. Any thoughts or additional questions from your end? Well, I thought that was fascinating. I definitely learned a lot. I one question I do have: um, What is the the future of Glens? Will you expand? Do you, or is that even something you're entertaining? Or just um, to keep growing the two stores and the uh, local businesses? Yeah, I mean, we opened a second location not nine months ago. Um, so it's still very much in its infancy. Um, and that's plenty. So that's number one, that's that's plenty. Um, I frankly, like, I simply don't have the capital to do another one. This is like, you know, it's a couple million bucks per store to build these things. Mm -hmm. um, not to mention, like, just the intellectual resources that go into adding that much stuff and, and all the logistics and everything else. But beyond that, um, a grocery store is a very energy consumptive proposition, um, no matter how well you do it. So I just have to constantly ask myself, like, if I built more grocery stores, would we be acting in a way that's consistent with our mission? And honestly, like, I think the answer is no. I mean, how many rooms surrounded by refrigerators can I build and still feel authentic about the progress that we're making? Um, 
So instead, we really have decided to focus very intensively on growing the small businesses and uh, maximizing the uh, the operations in the two stores we've got. That makes perfect sense. Do you ever run into your old uh, colleagues from your lawyer days, and do you miss that at all? It make interesting conversation when people say, "What are you up to?" Uh, yeah, I mean, they come in to the store often. It's a very strange power flip. You know, I used to be kind of a big deal. <laughs> and now I'm like bagging groceries, um, which is weird for people, but they also kind of love it because they're like, oh, you're the one that broke out. You did it. You know, it's not just a daydream. We're like standing in the reality that you created. Um, so as sort of almost embarrassing as it is that I'm on sort of like what's perceived as the wrong side of the counter um, by people that are like super ultra successful professionals, um, they also weirdly respect it, which is nice. Um, but at the same time, you know, as dedicated to climate progress as we are, we don't advertise it because I don't want it to be a reason for people to not come to the store. I don't want them to feel like it's some kind of like crazy ideological snow globe. Um, and so one of my favorite things is watching my super conservative former Senate colleagues sit at the bar and drink our beer. You know, like they're making progress one bite at a time, just like everybody else. Um, so I do have like former colleagues that are in on a, on a very regular basis and that's just, it's really cool to see. That's great. Yeah. Well, thank you, Emily. And thank you, Danielle, for sharing your time with us this morning. Thank you. Really enjoyed speaking with you. To learn more about Glenn's, visit glensgardenmarket.com or stop by one of their locations in Washington, D.C. For the next Sustainable Business Fridays, we'll be speaking with Maya Elizabeth, CEO of Whoopi and Maya and the founder and owner of Ohm Edibles. Bard MBA in Sustainability. Lead the change. Learn more at bard.edu.